and welcome to Galley Stories, stories of the Bering Sea and beyond, hosted by Mark Kaler. My name is Penka Jane, podcast deckhand and longtime listener. We'd thank you to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review. Here's today's catch. Hello guys, welcome to another installment of Galley Stories, stories of the Bering Sea and beyond. I am your host, Mark Kaler. And today we are still remaining in Beverly, and we have deckhand Will Raider with us today. Hey, Will, how are you? Hey, how's it going, Mark? Great, great. Actually, I met Will just today. Uh, we went out fishing on the Falcon, Dave Marciano's boat, and Will is one of his deckhands. So, Will, let's start way before that. Let's go back to where were you born and, and what brought you into the industry? Well, I was born in a hospital in Middletown, Connecticut. Uh, I grew up in a town called Deep River, Connecticut. And uh, my father's side of the family is from Rockaway Beach, Queens. We like to refer to it as the Irish Riviera. And my grandfather was a fisherman. And, um, you know, I grew up, I'd go surf casting with him, and I'd take his rods when he wasn't going fishing, and I'd go down to the bay wall, and I'd fish there. And uh, I grew up uh, right on the shores of the Connecticut River, in my hometown of Deep River, Connecticut. So I was like a Huckleberry Finn type river rat and uh, pretty much every summer I got in trouble every night for coming home late. You know, all I needed was my tackle box and my bicycle and a fishing rod and me and another buddy or oftentimes I'd go out alone, you know, to the trout streams or some of the farm ponds, catching bass, pickerel. I heard, uh, I overheard you telling Jesse a story about a little running with fish and game when you're kind of young. Yeah, I was about 12 years old visiting some family up on the uh, Cape, being Cape Cod that is, a uh, town called Chatham. And I was out digging uh, steamers, soft shell clam, we call them steamers, kind of the local name. And uh, I dug up about a five gallon bucket full and you know, when I was done and I was about to go back to the house with my, uh, with the bounty that I had just worked my tail off getting, um, Fishing Game came over and he said, hey son, you know, how are you? I said, hi sir. And he asked me if I had a permit. Now, I had no idea really that I needed a permit and uh, I told him, no, I don't. And he said, well, there's a problem. I'm going to need you to put those clams back. So, you know, I proceeded to kind of dump the bucket and scatter them around. And he looked at the clams. He looked at me and he said, no, where you found them. So uh, he stood there while I proceeded to bury each and every clam, you know, spaced apart with the siphon pointing up. And that took me about another couple hours. So once again, I was late for dinner and you know, the street lights had come on and I was in a bit of trouble, but I'll never forget that. <laughs> Sounds like a pretty good, pretty good lesson learned. Yeah, it was a burn. I wish he'd come over while I was digging them rather than waited till I was finished. And he stood there and watched you put them all back. Yep. He was probably getting overtime too. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So where did you go from there? Um, you know, I started, uh, like I said, I guess my first... I'd call it quote unquote a job. It was with uh, an old man who was a World War II vet who had a, it was called a scow, which is kind of like a skiff, but that was out of Westbrook, Connecticut. And he would take me out uh, blue fishing. So I'd carry the jerry cans. I would uh, wet the burlap sacks that we'd throw over the fish and 
then I do a wash down and carry the reels and rods back to the uh, truck afterwards and he'd bring me out during my summers and a couple summers after that I started uh, lobstering on a boat out of the uh, Long Island Sound. I used to have to go and I would take off all my clothes you know before I got in the house and I'd have to walk in through the cellar way because you know dealing with the barrels of brined dead skates that sit on the dock for weeks at a time and fester. It was a pretty uh, ripe job. That's what you're using for bait? Yeah, skates, yeah, which is a small barbless stingray. How old were you at this point? I was about 12, 12, 13 then. Commercial fishing? Yep. Yeah. Was you getting paid? Uh, it's kind of funny because I found out afterwards that uh, my mother had told the guy that I would like to do it just for the experience. So when it came time to get paid, he wasn't expecting me to ask, and I asked, and, you know, I ended up... I did the math. <clears throat> he ended up throwing me like a $50 bill and it worked out to be a dollar an hour. But the uh, the experience was priceless. That's good. That's good. Good on your mom. Yeah. She just wanted you out of the house. How many kids were there? Uh, there was, uh, at that point, there was me and my older brother and then I had three older stepbrothers and an older stepsister too. Okay. All right. So they were trying to get you out of the house. That's, yes, very true. They All right, were, so we're going to move on to then. Um, from there, gosh, you know, I uh, did a lot of fishing for fun, and I did a lot of globe trotting. I, I don't know I don't know what you would say. I, I traveled a lot. I uh, got myself in some trouble with the law, ran around, and was uh, a carny for a while. I um, somehow ended up down in the Virgin Islands, and... Geez, from there, you know, I, I did a little bit of island hopping because I was causing trouble kind of everywhere I went. And I ended up uh, living on a sailboat on the back side of St. John's in a place called Coral Bay with a bunch of, I guess you would consider them pirates. Um, did some fishing there, but nothing really to speak of commercially. It wasn't until I moved back to the States um, that I moved to the area that I'm in now. Now, hold on. You can't just say I was a pirate. <laughs> well, uh, I guess by pirate, we were uh, floating thieves, I guess you might call it. You know, anything that wasn't tied down. Pulling up to people's boats. And... Um, yeah, I suppose the statute of limitations might be uh, passed by now. But, yeah, anything that wasn't tied down, you know. Yeah, normally we, was moored. Normally we record this on my boat. So I'm really glad that we're... <laughs> yeah, cut the anchor line and uh, cut you off the mooring. Yeah. And... Okay, okay. But that was wild, wild youth, right? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. The boat that we lived on was called the Death Star. So it was, there was people, some people dying on the boat. Some people dying on the boat? Yeah, there was, uh, you know, there was some people that had some pretty bad habits. Oh, I got you. I got you. Not, not good stuff to be around or... Yeah. Right. All right, so you come back to the States, you're going to clean up and... Yeah, so I kind of got my act together a little bit, and uh, right here in Beverly, I started working at a fish market that's actually right around the corner here that we can't see, mm -hmm. right by the bridge, to the other side of the bridge, it's called the Rowan's Fish Market. And... Therese was just talking about that on her episode, so... Okay. So yeah, Elliot was maybe the guy that she was mentioning, he's the kind of patriarch of the family. 
Elliot Rowan, and I worked for his daughter, Deb. And uh, I'd sit back there and I'd be, you know, cutting fish, cleaning fish, and shucking lobsters, and I'd kind of watch the boats go by. And I'd wonder why I was in the back of the fish market, you know, when I could have been on one of those boats that was going by. And, uh, you know, I did that for a while. And eventually, through a friend of a friend, I met uh, Dave Marciano, who's the one that we just fished with today when we were tuna fishing. And uh, he and I became, you know, pretty close friends. And he gave me a shot, you know, once again to get back into the industry. And uh, we, he was running somebody else's boat at this time. He had pretty much um, sold his permits and was running somebody else's boat. And he was kind of floundering a little bit in his own operation. So he was running somebody else's boat. And we took the boat down to New Bedford, Mass. And we gillnetted for monkfish. So we did that for a couple of years and you know that was that was uh it was good fun work you know i was happy to get finally out of the, out on the water you know out from behind a counter and out from the back room of a you know seafood shop mm-hmm. where'd you go from there um from there you know i, I fished for a couple of years and then i went you know from the gill netting in the spring then i lobstered and you know, then I would do more gill netting for Pollock in the winter, and uh, and I'd lobster right through interspersed, and I was kind of a boat whore, you know what I mean? I'd bounce from, you know, boat to boat, and, you know, it got to a point where it was kind of hard to stitch together a living. My uh, responsibilities were getting greater, you know, I never really had a bill in my name till I was about, you know, 31 or 32 years old cell phone and then I was actually paying rent because I was stationary for the first time in my whole life you know being expected to pay my own bills so the long and short of it is that it was getting harder and harder to stitch together bouncing boat to boat so I was challenged by a guy that I know and he said you know you should get your application to become a merchant mariner and he's like you'll just get it can I swear yeah okay absolutely I've been like, I've been holding it fucking back. Oh my god, it's been hard to talk. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a fishing, commercial right. fishing. Yeah, show. say yeah, no more. Good. Say no more. So yeah, so this guy's like, you know, you'll just take the application, you'll throw it on your fucking table, it'll get covered with other bullshit, and then, you know, you'll forget about it. And I took that as a challenge. You know what I mean? This guy kind of knew me. He was reading my mail. So you know, I'm like, I'll show this guy. So I filled out the application, and, you know, sure enough, the Coast Guard denied it because of uh, my, let's call it, checkered past. But I was able to uh, talk to some different people, and through, like, a licensed clinician who was a friend of mine actually wrote a letter for me, you know, talking about how I had kind of turned my life around. And through getting, uh, you know, letters of recommendation or of endorsement from a couple different people in kind of high places, professional, you know, people. I was able to get something that's kind of the equivalent of a uh, pardon, I guess you would call it. I got what they call the proof of cure from dangerous drug and alcohol abuse uh, from the government, you know. So then I was able to resubmit my paperwork to the Coast Guard, and they uh, they signed me off on it. And given all the sea time that I had had, I got my unlimited 
able-bodied seaman's license, which basically means that I can work as a deckhand on commercial ships and um, research vessels, tugboats, you know, bulk carriers, any type of commercial ship. And the unlimited part of it means that uh, there's an unlimited tonnage because normally the licenses are limited by what size boat you can be on, which is determined by the tonnage. And so given all the uh, sea days that I had from fishing, I was able to get the unlimited tonnage as well as unlimited waters license because then it's delineated between, you know, inland and then near coastal. And then there's unlimited. So basically... You can go to Beijing. Yes. I've been to Shanghai, but not Beijing. Oh, yeah. okay. Up the Yangtze River so a little did bit. You, great, good on you for accepting the, the challenge. Yeah. And uh, and taking it that way. And it sounds like it took some steps to get it done. Well, obviously, it took some steps to get yeah, it done. Yeah, definitely. But did you start using the license then? I did, yeah. Then I, uh, I did. I started working the license, and... I was still uh, I was still lobstering, and I started moonlighting, literally moonlighting at a place called Boston Line and Service Company. It's out of uh, Black Falcon Terminal in South Boston, and uh, what we would do was stores loads. So a big ship would pull in, and they'd be at anchor, you know, because they couldn't get into some of the shallower ports. So we would bring out, you know, the pilots, or we would bring out. Um, their stores load so all the food and water and uh you know different uh i don't know what you would call it i suppose uh, yeah just different supplies that they would need you know so we'd run all those stores loads and another big part of the job was taking a little skiff out um stretching out what we call oil boom so when a oil barge or an oil ship or a fuel ship something with petroleum would be loading or discharging we stretch out a floating perimeter around it in the event of uh, a spill or somebody attempting to approach the ship you know it would hang Doesn't up that take an additional uh, notch on that license well um or, what, or you were the deckhand on there and it... right i was the deckhand there but what i have i have gone on to uh after see that job that was just like i said moonlighting you know it was a deckhand there and it was my first kind of foot in the door of the commercial industry and we'd stretch the boom around later on i would go on to working on the ships that i was stretching the boom around and working on the barges that i would stretch the boom around but i guess the point i'm illustrating is this this job it was uh it was kind of bottom of the barrel you know, so I would do it at night and I was exhausted from lobstering and I was the new guy. So they'd call me, you know, in February when it was 2.30 in the morning, blowing 35 knots and they needed somebody to go and stretch this uh, oil boom, you know, around a ship that was coming in. And I didn't have, you know, any experience in the industry. So I had to take any shit job that came my way, you know, and... I couldn't have seen then how that was going to end up opening doors for me, but it did because the next place that I applied to, which was a uh, tugboat company and like terminal where they took in scrap and delivered scrap and all sorts of different stuff in, in uh, New Haven, Connecticut. It was called Gateway Terminal, which they had a bunch of tugboats. But when I called and applied there, the guy that did the hiring knew the guy that had hired me from the company in South Boston. So it was like I was hired immediately. 
So all those, you know, hours of getting up after lobstering all day at 2.30 in the morning to rush down to Boston to, you know, boom out an oil barge at 2.30 in the morning, 35 knots of wind, 10 degree weather, it had paid off. Um, so I got a job working on the tugboats out of Gateway Terminal. And I did that for a couple years and... I got bored, you know, that's kind of a big part of my story is I get bored and want to see different things. So I had had my heart set on Alaska at that point, and I was going to work for a company called Crowley that was big and had a lot of uh, business up in Alaska moving fuel. And they had hired me, but I had planned for years, not years, but yeah, I had thought about for years and had planned for about a year taking my son who was then nine years old to walk something called the Camino Santiago in Spain which is a medieval pilgrimage route and I had taken a 40-day block of time that I was going to dedicate to kind of a rite of passage type pilgrimage walk with my nine-year-old son and Crowley had hired me and they wanted me to fly out on the same day that my flight that I had my flight to Spain so I opted out of working for Crowley in Alaska, and I took my son to Spain. But I kept pumping out applications, and I applied for Foss Maritime out of Seattle, who also worked uh, in Alaska. Before we move on to that, let's yeah. talk about that Spain trip with your son. Absolutely. How cool <clears throat> was that? Um, trip of a lifetime for both of us. It was, uh, it was absolutely magical absolutely magical you know to see a nine-year-old little boy like he he inspired because there's tons of people from all walks of life and all different countries all around the world it's truly a i would call it i guess an international phenomenon where you have all these people merge and getting together sharing one pretty much common goal to make you know this pilgrimage route so i felt like you know from a cultural standpoint that it was uh you know he could learn more from that than X amount of years of schooling. I, I felt like it was very important. And me being a mariner, being away a lot of the times, it's it was hard to uh, spend a lot of consistent time with him. So I felt like this condensed a lot of uh, a lot of our relationship into a, a nice, long, you know, condensed, um, memorable journey. How was the walk? I mean, exp explain that to us a little bit. Would you'd walk for the whole day and stay where? Yeah, it was uh, it was arduous, but I think it was so uh, it was so cleansing and cathartic in the sense where, in daily life, there's always this buzz and this rush. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? And uh, I got to do this, got to do this, and kind of get that monkey mind and motor minded. Uh, I, don't know, I hate to call it ADD, but just there's so much going on, and when you're on this pilgrimage on this trail what am I gonna do what am I gonna do? well what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna wake up today and then I'm gonna walk and then at some point mid-morning I'll get a coffee and then I'll walk some more till I get hungry and then I'll eat and then I'll walk some more till I get tired then I'll find a place to stay and I'll sleep and what they have is you get what's called a pilgrim passport where you go and you sign in at one of the uh, cathedrals and you get a pilgrim passport so all along the walk different places that you stop you get these stamps in your passport and you arrive at what's called an albergue at night or in the afternoon and it's a hostel specifically set up for the pilgrims on this pilgrimage 
and it's you know five euros a lot of them are donativo or a donation so there's all these uh, little places little hostels that they call albergues along your path that you can go stay at and a lot of them provide meals and uh, you know a nice clean place to, to rest and the next day what am I gonna do what am I gonna do well I'm gonna walk till I get hungry then I'm gonna eat then I'm gonna walk till I get tired and sleep so you get into this natural rhythm of doing that and uh, just kind of the rest of that whole fast paced and what am I going to do stuff starts to melt away and it's really it was an excellent time for a lot of reflection a lot of bonding with this kid and uh, you know it was amazing to see a nine year old boy um, persevere you know because there was people dropping out all the time so he gave everybody around him strength we we're in some of the local newspapers over there, like people who heard that we were coming before we arrived at the next albergue. And um, gosh, I can't even get, I couldn't even really begin to describe just some of the amazing, um, you know, synchronistic type uh, instances of, you know, just the magic of the world revealing itself to us. And, uh, you know, I know he'll never forget it, that's for sure. Sounds to me like it was an incredible trip. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, to spend that much time with your kid in, in that kind of a foreign environment, and I love the way that you describe that, <clears throat> what am I going to do today? I'm going to wake up and walk. That's kind of what we do anyway, but you had the, you had the clear sense because that's all that you were doing. You know, every day we wake up and work, you know, but different i totally get what you're saying i love i love what you're saying and thanks for taking the time to explain that now if one of our listeners because this is obviously going to inspire somebody to want to do something like that what kind of a package i mean just this a ballpark figure did this cost you to spend this 40 days with your son well you know if i was to try to break it down i mean we all know that airfare is cheaper the earlier you buy it you know so i would encourage somebody to you know, set a time, put put away, put away, aside the time, get the airfare taken care of. So you get the airfare out of the way, which was the most expensive part of it. You can literally get, a, get by on, I would say, $25 a day. You know, so whatever amount of time you're able to allow yourself to do it, I would say $25 a day per person would, uh, would cover it. How far on the walk did you get? We walked from... Irun, or really we walked from Ndai, um, France. So we started pretty much in Irun, which is uh, in the Basque country in northeastern uh, Spain. And we walked across the bridge into France, and then we started going back towards, uh, I guess, Galicia, which is extreme northwestern Spain. So we walked what's considered the northern route because we're both kind of beach bums and... I want to be by the water and see the fishermen. That's something that I kind of, I can backtrack a little bit. But when I was 10 years old, um, I went on a family vacation with my father and my older brother and one of my cousins. And we were all over Spain and Portugal. And we were down in, um, what was the name of the town? We were, we were in a town in uh, Portugal. Why is it? escaping my name it's there's a uh, Lagos yeah like like Nigeria the same L-A-G-O-S 
and everybody was going to go snorkeling and I was transfixed by the men fishing on the side of the river and I wouldn't leave and I was 10 years old so my father you know he kind of trusted me he knew I was a reasonably savvy kid so he's like all right well we'll see you later and they left me on the side of this river in Lagos Portugal for a half a day while they went out to the coast and uh, snorkeled so yeah so on this walk we took the northern route which uh, kept us closer to the ocean and what was the uh, where did we walk from okay we walked from Ndaye, France, all the way to Finisterra in Spain. So Santiago de Compostela is the town where the pilgrimage allegedly ends, where there's a big cathedral and there's um, a story that ties in with St. James, who was the first martyred saint in Christendom. But there's also that the uh, pilgrimage route was older than Christianity itself. And it predates Christianity and people were doing it during Roman times. So Finisterra literally means end of the earth because in Roman times they believed that that was as far west as you could get. So literally they called it the end of the earth. So we walked from France all the way through northern Spain all the way to the Atlantic Ocean at the end of the earth and then it's customary to you kind of burn a piece of clothing or something that you cherish and uh, it's somewhat of a rite of passage because I knew that I was going to be going to sea and start going for longer stretches because like I said I had gotten hired by FOSS so when I came back I was going to be leaving for longer stretches and I was working in the Arctic so basically I had my son burn his favorite shirt and I explained to him that it was time for him that he was going to have to take care of his little sister and his mother a little bit more and it was kind of like a rite of passage type thing he was only nine years old but he was a pretty precocious kid and uh, he was ready to shoulder a little bit more responsibility when he went home and particularly after you know persevering and enduring that long journey I felt it was time to kind of have a little talk with him like that. So you finished it? Yeah. You finished it? Yep. This is a there's a movie about this walk isn't there a documentary or yeah there's a martin sheen movie which i i haven't seen it but it's called the way i've seen it yeah and that's when you when you mentioned the end of the earth and the the rite of passage at the end it triggered that memory of watching yeah so uh great great so then you uh, started going back you went north you went to alaska yeah when i got back i i flew up uh i went out to seattle and did all the paperwork and then we went up to Anchorage, then from Anchorage over to Kotzebue, and then from Kotzebue up to the Red Dog Mine, which is about 200 miles north of the Arctic Circle. 100 miles north of Kotzebue. I was just there a month ago. Yeah, you were in Kotzebue? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's an interesting place. Huh. Oh, boy. So you were working out of the Red, Red Dog Mine then? or? Yep. <clears throat> At the Red Dog Mine, basically there's an inland mine, lead and zinc, and I think some silver and maybe um, platinum, but I, predominantly a lead and zinc mine, and there's no deep water port. So they would truck all the uh, all the ore that's probably 50 miles inland out to a shore facility, and then they had big conveyors that would bring it out, and they would load it onto these barges that we would move with a tugboat out to the ships that would wait about three miles out where they had deep enough water, and we would tie alongside these ships 
and offload the ore onto the ships that would head to their different ports of call. Okay. So yeah, that would that was some pretty interesting work because what would happen is we couldn't come alongside the ships if uh, there was anything over two feet, you know, any type of swell or wave action over two feet. So what would happen is that we wouldn't be able to do it, you know, for hours or days at a time. And we had all these quotas we had to meet. So once conditions were right, we would work 24 hours around the clock. So we would get pretty dangerous. Their FOSS probably wouldn't like me saying this because there are Coast Guard regulations about how long you're sp supposed to be able to work, you know, at a time without getting rest. But we'd work pretty much around the clock. And what had happened is you'd get so caffeinated so that you wouldn't get killed. <laughs> so you could stay uh, awake and cognizant and have your, you know, situational awareness about you. So then you would never know what was going to happen. You'd, they'd come up and tap you on the shoulder or something and say, all right, you, Raider, go go take a nap for a couple hours. It's like, that sounds, you know, fine and well and good, but I just had nine cups of coffee. So two hours would go by, you know, you'd stare at the top of your bunk and then you'd be back out on deck. So it was a, it was a grind, you know, when the conditions were met such that, you know, we could work. But I did that, you know, for a couple months till the end of the season. And then we uh, came back down, had to cross the Gulf of Alaska. And you had to time that pretty good, you know, late November. And then we'd shoot over into the in Inner Passage and back down to Seattle. Yeah, I've seen a lot of those tugs up there. And it's a it's long work, long work. But let's, let's, let's move to a different, little different area here, Will. Um, Obviously, you've had a lot of time at sea at this point, uh, in and out. Um, do you do you remember the first time you got scared? Jeez, the first time I got the scared. First time. Yeah, I guess I do. I guess I do. I was uh, was right out here. We went to do. I'd been lobstering and. You know, as you're lobstering, you're hearing about tuna this, tuna that, and you get you get sick and tired of hearing it. And uh, the tuna game, nobody really makes any money at it, but everybody kind of thinks. We call it tuna wishing. So on the lobster boat that I was on, we decided that we were going to make a run out to, uh, to George's Bank. And, you know, it's like a 40-foot boat, and you're going out, you know, 120 miles at least and uh, the weather got bad there and it was all coming into our face on the way home so just pounding for you know 24 hours just getting the shit beat out of you and then start having engine trouble and uh, just being so seasick to the point that you can hardly move um, I remember being a little scared then for sure was it a good trip otherwise uh well it was good. It was good because we came back, but we didn't catch anything and uh, just got the shit beaten out of us. Mm -hmm. But that was that was a little scary, just because when you're that far out in a small boat. Um, but yeah, that's the first time I'd say I was scared. So going back to when you got off the tug, when when at what point did you decide to come back east? Because you you were there for a while. Yeah, I uh, I came back east, and you know what what had actually happened to me is between 
backpacking across Europe and then working up in the Arctic and hauling lines and before that working on a tug I had ruptured a couple discs in my back and it's kind of unclear to me when it actually happened but uh, I started having injections in my back and when I came back east after doing the Alaska thing I had told him on my way out you know that I wasn't averse to any international trips and I knew that they had been doing work in West Africa at the time and there was a big Ebola scare going on so I specifically put in the email to the company that I wasn't afraid to go up the Congo River or whatever it was they had going on uh, in West Africa and that any of the longer international trips basically I wasn't averse to that so what I ended up doing was getting on a trip where we were leaving out of Seattle to go to Shanghai to pick up a load of barges to bring back to Vancouver and um, I didn't give myself enough time to heal from the back stuff that I had going on and I only came back from the Arctic for about I think I was home six days before I flew back out to Seattle and uh, that was kind of a nightmare scary trip because I got past Midway Island and all the uh, cortisone injections that I had had I had had like the third one the first one lasted probably 45 days and then the second one lasted I'd say about a month and then this third one that I had had in that six day period when I was home only lasted about 15 days which got me out into the middle of the Pacific where kind of the full brunt of three ruptured discs hit me and the nerve pain was uh, excruciating I don't know if any of you listeners understand <laughs> nerve pain of one ruptured disc and the sciatica that comes along with it I had three of them and that hit me full on and when we crossed the Pacific it was a 30-day trip and I think about nine of the days were under 10 foot seas and we had we call them uke tires I don't I don't even know what that stands for but big um, big like excavator tires around the outside of the tug and they were chained to the hull and because of all the seas that we were taking the tires were ripping off so we had chains banging off the hull so not only do you not get good rest when the seas are high like that but then with the chains banging so we'd wait for weather windows and I'd have to put on a harness and climb over the side get tied in to grab a hold of these chains and then tie them off in the hopes that we could get them to stop banging on the hull so that we could sleep you know during our trip across and I had the ever-increasing nerve pain shooting down my leg which feels kind of like somebody's going down through your leg with an electrified wire that's also heated very hot and uh, they call to shore to call like a doctor you know they have a different um, health force or some sort of doctor that's on call 24 hours and the only prescription that they were allowing me to have was prednisone which is a pretty powerful steroid which um, for me I had kind of adverse reactions to where it made me not able to sleep and uh, made me very agitated but that was what we had to get me to uh, to get me to China and it was uh, this was kind of hell because it was right around Christmas time and 
the captain, who was kind of a tyrant, was convinced that I just wanted to go home to <laughs> go home to my family for Christmas, which, uh, you know, he, he wasn't believing it because when you have back pain, you can't just point and say, this is where it hurts. So I had to pull some strings and I had to pull some serious strings and basically go over his head and call Shoreside through or go email Shoreside and tell them that I was going to get, you know, higher authorities involved and that I was going to, I attempted to get in touch with the embassy in China and I finally was able to get through to Shoreside and explain kind of the gravity of my situation and I didn't have a visa to set foot in China. So what ended up happening is they sent out a launch or a boat with a whole bunch of uh, Chinese military. So in the condition that I was in, I could barely get off the boat and I had, you know, was looking down the barrel of a bunch of different assault rifles and I was brought ashore to this communist public Chinese hospital with a doctor that was picking his nose that was fucking blood on the walls and they proceeded to give me a couple CAT scans and on the CAT scan it revealed you know clean as day I still have photos of uh, the CAT scans I don't have the actual CAT scans but clear as day you know the fully ruptured discs and I uh, got escorted back to the ship you know like I said because I didn't have the visa and I wanted to, you know, beat the captain over the head with the view of the cat skin with the ruptured discs, like I said, because he was saying that I just wanted to get off the boat because it was Christmas time. So I showed him that, and they were able to arrange to get me a temporary visa so I could fly out from Shanghai. And uh, that was like a $9,000 plane ticket because, it, you know, there was... Uh, it was in courts whether or not who should pay for the plane ticket and I had to have a reclined seat so it was like first time I'd ever been in first class on a jumbo jet where I had my own like kind of cubicle type thing that was reclined and uh, you know movies waited on hand and foot it was uh, it was interesting did you self-medicate on the way back over yeah I sure did <laughs> and uh, I hadn't medicated in about five years at all with anything so when they brought me back to the hospital, I was kind of against taking any type of uh, narcotic painkillers. But I was in so much pain, you know, I, I took a shot with uh, anti-inflammatory. And then what I did uh, give them a pass for, was okay with, was uh, to give me some benzodiazepines or like a Valium. And uh, then they gave me a prescription for Flexeril, which is a muscle relaxer. So I was avoiding, you know, the prescription narcotics, but... I took the Valium and the Flexeril, which kind of opened the floodgates. And then, you know, there was a lawsuit involved with, you know, being injured at sea in a Jones Act claim. And I had myself convinced that I needed to fill the prescription for the Percocets that they had given me because I couldn't make a claim that I was in such pain if I wasn't, you know, filling the pain pill prescriptions. So I started stockpiling them because I still wasn't taking them because I didn't want to be, you know, self-medicating because... As I kind of described before, that proof of cure, I wanted to keep that proof of cure as far as the Coast Guard was concerned. And, um, you know, through dealing with, uh, you know, a bunch of emotional pain, because when I got back, it was just after Christmas time, and my family went on a ski vacation. 
And I was home alone. I couldn't stand up for more than two minutes at a time because of the pain from the three ruptured discs. So my family went away. I was all alone. And I ended up actually getting the stomach bug, which, uh, you know, the norovirus. So I had, you know, let's say had it coming out of both ends, could hardly make it to the restroom down the hall and was just in a weakened state and I started taking the Percocet painkillers and I'd say it was more from the mental anguish and the emotional pain than the physical pain which I'd kind of grown accustomed to but being separated from my family and just a lot of anguish that was associated with different things that were going on in my life and I ended up actually accidentally overdosing and being found in my bed unresponsive. I'd actually had a heart attack and had pretty much died. I had to have uh, chest compressions and be resuscitated. Kind of broke my breastbone, which, you know, they did a good job resuscitating me, which I think is one of the things that happens. But uh, like I said, I had had a heart attack. So I was in a coma for a few days and I woke up in the hospital and... Uh, I could say honestly that after coming through that, you know, I was still in all the back pain, but I can just remember being in tears, uh, thankful for every trivial annoyance and nuisance in my life and everything that kind of used to piss me off. I, I was okay with because I was alive. And that was a, that was a long recovery because there was uh, some conflict between who was going to pay for the back surgery so the company that I had been working for and then the insurance companies were going back and forth so I literally um, languished I suppose from December all the way till I think March 27th was when I actually <coughs> finally had the surgery and that was a long time you know to not be able to stand up for more than two minutes at a time so my life was really reduced down to um, like what I would do, it was almost an outing to go to Walmart and ride one of the carts, the motorized carts. Like that was the extent, that was like going to uh, Disney World for me, you know, because I was pretty much housebound. And for me, being a guy that, you know, had just backpacked across Europe and had been commercial fishing all over, you know, being all over the world for work and being up in Alaska in the Arctic and then going to China, like all these different things to be you know have my world constricted down to basically my studio apartment and then occasionally an outing to Walmart on a motorized cart was a pretty big shock so when I finally had the surgery I guess it was March 27th of 2015 um, I had a quick recovery period I took time to go down to Costa Rica where I used to live and I kind of rehabbed on the beach um, in a town called Montezuma. I got to see a bunch of old friends from when I lived down there. And, you know, I took some time to really reflect and decompress from all the stuff that I had gone through, you know, with all the pain from the injury and then the heart attack and um, the recovery from all that. You know, I took a month. I took, I took some time to get away because, like I said, my life had been reduced or constricted down to my studio apartment. And... When I came back, I had been applying for jobs, uh, like kind of a get well type job, something that would have been a little easier on my body because the fishing and then the tugboat jobs uh, were pretty labor intensive. So I thought that I would scale it back a little bit. Kind of one of the lawyers that was involved with my case was telling me basically that I should 
not work in the maritime business anymore. And, you know, I explained to her whether it was fishing or working on boats and ships, period, that it, like, wasn't my choice. It had chosen me. And I may as well just lay down and die if I wasn't going to go back out to sea. And, you know, the lawyer couldn't understand that. And I guess I can't really expect her to. But what I did is I was filling out applications online while I was down in Costa Rica. And I heard back from the University of Connecticut. And I had put in to be a deckhand on their research vessel that was based out of Groton. And I had all but gotten hired, and I had an interview with the gentleman. It was, uh, what is it, the Master of Marine, or it was, the acronym was MOM, so Marine Operations Manager, so MOM. So I talked to MOM, and it was a guy by the name of uh, Turner Cabinus, and it was interesting because my address that I had put down on the application, which was in Salem, Massachusetts at the time, he started describing the place where I lived and he said, oh yeah, there's a pool in the back and it looks like this and on the street. And at first I was taken aback and I'm thinking, all right, buddy, everybody has Google Maps. But come to find out this gentleman had lived in the same exact apartment that I lived in, in Salem, Massachusetts. So there was another connection um, kind of like from the time I started in the maritime industry where I started working for that Boston line and service company and then I went to the other tug company and how the guy that did the hiring knew the guy that did the hiring at the other place and there was always some sort of uh, connection between the people and this one blew my mind where the guy had lived in the same apartment you know 150 miles away so I ended up working for the University of Connecticut and I spent a lot of time working uh, you know the mechanical winches the cranes on deck and we serviced a lot of the weather buoys and we were involved in a lot of different you know interesting pieces of research so different um, different higher learning institutions and institutes would rent out the boat basically charter it and they'd come and we would uh, bring them out to do whatever research they were doing and that really whetted my appetite for you know just another layer of some of the work that goes on out at sea so I did that for you know the whole summer and then actually Foss called me back and I still worked for them and I went to work for Foss again uh, that fall so I was back out to the west coast and um, then I came to a point where I had to go back to work for Foss or I could go work in research again for Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution because I had filled out applications for them. And as I kind of described before, I get itchy feet quick and there's a lot of room to move around out at sea. So I end up going from one thing to the next. And uh, I ended up working for Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution for the better part of that winter, um, which that was very interesting, you know. Um, I could get in a little bit more depth about that, I guess some of the research stuff, but the long and short once again is that that was incredibly enriching. But, you know, I always missed because I'd get involved with these big companies and a lot of moving parts and I always missed kind of the camaraderie of small boat fishing where I'd started. Um, there's a lot less personalities to deal with. There's a lot less um, chain of command. There's a lot less, uh, variables you know pretty much and what I felt I got away from when I started working in the commercial world and on tugboats and 
on some of these big research vessels is that when there would be a problem, you know, a lot of times, particularly I'm going to pick on tugboats, but uh, there'd be a lot of finger pointing, you know, and everybody be trying to pass the buck and see who to blame it on and blame it on the next guy and pass down the blame. And my experience on fishing boats is if something went wrong or something broke or something happened, everybody just fixed it and there was nothing said about it necessarily. You know, there was no, there was no finger pointing. Everybody just skipped over that part of it and everybody just remedied whatever the problem may have been. And I really miss that when I kind of got out of fishing. So I've always kind of since then, you know, I, and I'm back fishing now, but I work and there's a lot in between. I mean, I ended up working on the Great Lakes, which was interesting. You know, I got locked in the ice for three weeks one time. Um, worked carrying ore from Lake Superior down to some of the steel mills at um, like Gary, Indiana, Cleveland, Indiana, that fed kind of the auto industry, Detroit and all these different things but I always would miss going back to the fishing you know so it gets harder and harder though to make ends meet really and to stitch together a living because fishing you know you end up being owned by one particular boat and I just haven't been able to stitch it completely together so I have one foot in the commercial and then one foot in the fishing like I work now for the military sea lift command and i know it gets convoluted because i have done so much jumping around but i've worked now for almost a year for the military sea lift command but in the time off that i have from working there the leave i extend that out as long as i possibly can and then i'm fishing like a maniac the whole time i'm off so i'm never really off of work but i have to take you know i'm using air quotes right now but i have to take time off from my real job to go follow my passion which is the fishing and I just hope that at some point in time I can get it together enough such that I can just fish for a living and uh, not have to go and take these other jobs for these other big companies you know in the interest of getting insurance or I mean how I dare say uh, put together some sort of a retirement you know but it's not really where my heart is like I said, I'm kind of straddling one foot in each uh, in each world, and I guess yeah, my hope is that I can put it together and and fish for a living, you know. But I gotta live in the real world, and I keep having to go back to carry insurance, or there's something that pulls me back. Right now, a lot of it has to do with being financed with the bank because I did become a homeowner, and then I sold the house. But at the time I was able to get financed, I had a two-year linear work history with one company, which, you know, allowed the finance companies enough confidence in me and my uh, income to be able to give me a loan. But without having that two-year linear history, I don't think I'll be able to purchase again. And it's hard to get that with fishing, you know, something to satisfy them. And then I'm not... Uh, terribly attentive to the details associated with paying my own taxes and handling some of that IRS stuff either which is the, uh, the a challenge the fisherman strife all the time man. yeah exactly all the time <laughs> well let me ask you just a, a final question yeah uh, what's your advice for young guys head down elbows up work your ass off you will get noticed um, don't ever ask when you think we'll be back at the dock um, that's kind of a dead giveaway because when you ask that something comes up and it ends up taking longer you know so 
just uh yeah head down elbows up work your ass off you will get noticed you know and uh i i encourage anybody you know to to head out to see there's so much work out here and if you want to if you think you have what it takes to you know get to a maritime academy or to do something like joining the coast guard like those are those are very viable options you know if that isn't open to you you can't go wrong i don't think with just getting into any type of job if you can't get on the water get close to the water work on a dock work on work somewhere across the street from a dock and just move your way towards it because like i said you know getting back into the industry i started in a fish market watching the boats go by so anything you can do to put yourself in proximity to it talk about it uh talk to anybody that'll listen you know and if it's your thing it's going to pull you into it you know so just be ready i think you started when you were 10 years old on a beach in spain yeah yep you know that was uh yeah on the, on the I, side I, of the river what, in lagos one one final 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 question yeah do you want your son to do this i i do i do okay. i really do i've had him out he was banning lobsters when he was seven or eight years old uh he's been out tuna fishing with me he's uh I don't want to push it, but I would be very proud to see him find his way on the ocean. Awesome. Awesome. All right, guys, this has been another installment of Galley Stories. Uh, do us a favor, please, and uh, hit that iTunes button. Give us a like, subscribe, and if you have the time or can take the time, leave us a comment. We'd appreciate it. Uh, Will, I thank you a lot for sitting down with us today. Cheers. Normally, normally we're on the gale. We've been running around the East Coast, and currently we're sitting in a rental car. <laughs> so it's been a it's been an adventure venturesome day. It was a bit nautical out there today. It was. It was. All right, guys. We will see you next time. Thanks for listening to Galley Stories. We hope you like what the net brought in. Please leave us a review on iTunes. Whether you like it or not, we're not fishing for compliments. Look us up on Facebook and Twitter too, and reach out to us at galleystories at gmail dot com. <laughs>